good to see you all. It's especially good to see my aunt Anne, who almost didn't make it this morning, did you, Anne? I said, I'm preaching today if you want to come. And she said, well, I really feel like I should get along to my own church this morning. But she said, see if there was any chance we could go to Chilino's for our lunch. <laughs> <laughs> then I might go to the East End of Glasgow instead. So I think that's what I'm planning on doing. Hi. Yes, we're blessed. To, well, you're all blessed to live around here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this morning, it's exciting to get stuck back into 1 Corinthians together. Over the past few weeks, uh, we've been beginning a series titled Grace Changes Everything. And we've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so far, we've been in the first chapter of his letter, where Paul has been rebuking the Corinthian people uh, for the divisions which have emerged in their fellowship. And he asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Mm. The implication being that his body, which is us, the church, shouldn't be divided. And then he goes on to talk about wisdom in verses 18 to 25. He mentions God's wisdom as demonstrated in the cross of Christ, which seems to be like foolishness to an unbelieving world. And in verse 25, Paul writes that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength and these verses make up the immediate context for the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning so let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we're going to be reading from verses 26 to 31 and the words should be appearing on the screen Uh, if you want a hard copy to follow along then there's some available at the back as well Uh, okay Let's read. I wrote down read passage and they never wrote the passage. Okay, just read this, can you? Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise, not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it's written, one boast in the Lord. So Father, just morning, I pray that you would really uh, write your word on our hearts, as we look at it and as we get stuck into it, I pray that your spirit would come and make your truth known to us this morning. I pray that you would come, Lord, and embody my words as I speak and anything that I bring that's maybe not helpful and not of you, I pray that it would just fall by the wayside. That you would be made known, that you would be glorified. And I pray that you would speak not what we want to hear, God, but what we need to hear. In Jesus' name. So as we saw earlier in verse 25, um, 
Paul makes a contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. And as we begin with today's passage, we see that he's now applying this concept of God's wisdom and human wisdom into the context of the lives of the Corinthian believers. He says to the church in verse 26, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. And we already know from what we've been looking at the past couple of weeks that pride was a real issue in the Corinthian church because we see the divisions that were existing. And whenever we see division, we can kind of safely assume that pride is the root issue because pride values being right more than it values being together. And as we saw the other week, the Corinthians said things like, I follow Paul, or well, I follow Apollos, and so on. And Paul began to tackle this issue not by focusing on the wisdom of man, which is so subjective and essentially futile when it comes to matters of eternity. And instead, he begins to focus on God's wisdom. And we begin to see here that this is a really effective strategy when it comes to tackling the divisions in the church and for showing them as ridiculous as they are and as dangerous as they are and in fact as they still are for us today and knowing that the church is getting confused and divided over essentially non-essential opinions and stances Paul decides to get back to basics he says consider your calling verse 26 he's addressing them all when he says this when Paul uses the word calling here he's not talking about their jobs he's not talking about their vocation in life but the, the Greek word here, and forgive my pronunciation, is klesis, which refers to the call of God through his word and by his spirit. And every believer who calls Jesus Lord has experienced that call. He says you're calling, speaking to each one of them. And he's emphasising that the church here is a collective people, each called to faith in Jesus first and foremost. Their calling is, or at least should be, at the root of how they function as the body of Christ in Corinth. And Paul knows that these issues that the church is experiencing come from the focus being more on themselves. And so he points them back to their calling in Christ and by Christ. He says that when they were called, not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. It's verse 26. And these are three attributes of a person in which the society would have placed a great deal of importance. And I think it's safe to say that these are the aspects that our society places a great deal of importance on as well. Wisdom. Look at the high esteem in which academics are held, eh, or medical professionals, amongst other people. Power. Look at where we place politicians and other leaders on the social ladder. Being of noble birth. Look maybe at our royal family and the importance that we give them. And I'm not suggesting that there's anything inherently wrong by valuing these elements. But Paul shows that the wisdom of God completely upsets these societal standards and causes us to look deeper and to look more intently, even if it's uncomfortable. Not many of the Corinthian people ticked these three boxes. Paul's really clear about that. The Corinthian people became the church of God in Corinth due to no other fact than the Father revealed himself in Christ to them and many were saved. They weren't saved on account of their wisdom or their ability to comprehend the deepest truths. They weren't saved due to having power 
or been able to twist God's arm. And they weren't saved because they were fortunate enough to be born into the right family. In fact, according to their standards, most of them were born into the wrong family. They were saved simply because God called them. And we do know from other parts of scripture that not every member of the early church was of really humble background. Uh, For example, in Acts 13, we read about Sergius Paulus coming to faith. He was a Roman official of really high authority in Crete. In Acts 17.12, which I think should up the third point, uh, Luke writes of people in Thessalonica. He says this, Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. So the point here isn't that it's a certain demographic that's called by God. It's not that those of lower standing or higher standing uh, have priority. The point that Paul's making is that the call of God has nothing to do with these categories that man uses to measure importance. And this is perfectly demonstrated by the people in the church of Corinth, the vast majority of whom were of really humble beginnings and backgrounds. The Corinthian Christians' modest background goes to show that God calling them is a totally sovereign work of grace. Like our series title, for the Corinthians, grace alone changed everything. And had they grasped that fully in the first place, they might not have experienced the issues of division that we read about, which were fueled by basically enlarged views of themselves and their own standing. And I wonder this morning if there are areas in which we need to grasp this as well. The simple but amazing truth that God has called by name each one of us who believe in him and trust in him. So whether we consider ourselves wise or unwise this morning, whether we're powerful or not, regardless of the social circumstances that we were born into, let's be reminded that our call supersedes all of these things. And Paul continues to emphasise this in verses 27 to 28. He explains that God's strategy and reason for doing things by saying this. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. And so Paul isn't just reminding the Corinthians that they weren't of high standing. But he's also teaching them why, why that matters, why that's significant. God has chosen, for the most part, the parts of society that were considered to be low and insignificant. The members of society that wouldn't be the logical choice of recruitment for any group that was wishing to progress and grow or be fruitful in first century Greece. And in lifting these people up to the position of being his chosen ambassadors in the world, God has completely overthrown the way things are supposed to be. He shamed the wise in a Greek and Roman culture that treasured intellect. Corinth was known as a place where famous speakers would visit and would share their wisdom, share their knowledge, and they would charge for it most of the time, advising the people on how to live their lives. It's into this context that God has demonstrated true wisdom, which completely overthrows earthly wisdom. He shamed the strong in a city which applauded strength both socially and physically. 
Corinth was actually home to the Isthmian Games and these were very similar to the Olympic Games of Olympia where only the strongest and most skilled competitors would be the ones that were rewarded and celebrated. And in this context, God has raised up the weak to represent himself. It makes no sense by the world's standards. It says he shamed the wise, he shamed the strong. And the Greek word here, and I'm really going to butcher this, is kataiskrahuno. I took Hebrew at college, not Greek, so... Um, and this can essentially be translated as to be made to blush. He has brought to nothing that which is viewed as something. He's made the high and the mighty blush by raising up the low and bringing them to salvation in Christ. And yet, as Barrett writes, it's not the world's false boasting and its wisdom and ability that causes Paul to write 1 Corinthians, but it's the same false boasting within the church and at Corinth, where Christians were glorifying in men and wrongly evaluating their gifts. And God definitely showed the Corinthian society that he is wisdom, that he is strength, that he is the highest. But the main issue that Paul's addressing here lies within the church. He's writing to a church that's completely forgotten what actually matters. A church that's forgotten that when each of them were brought to a saving faith in Jesus, it wasn't because of anything that they brought to the table. And he drives home why this is important that we remember this in the next verse. We read in verse 29. So that no one may boast in his presence. And if you remember what we looked at the other week, that people were boasting in everything except God. We looked at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, where Paul critiques the divisions among the people when he writes, One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in Paul's name? And the entire way through this letter, Paul is trying to get them back to the simple truth of their simple yet profound origin. That God has chosen them irrespective of their background, irrespective of their standing among man. And for Paul, the person who's grasped this is the person that doesn't try and score brownie points by boasting about being in the right group or by boasting that they've got the right theology or that they talk the right talk. The person that gets this is the person who's humbled by a loving saviour who's done everything already on their behalf. The person who in the presence of their God can no longer boast about anything that society claims to be of value. It becomes an impossibility for the person that's grasped this. And having established that it's not appropriate for God's chosen people to boast in human things, Paul now affirms what is fitting for them. In verses 30 to 31, which should be up in the PowerPoint, it reads, It's from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from us, wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption, 
in order that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So according to Paul, the Corinthians are to boast, but they're to boast in God. Boast in what the Father has done in his wisdom through Jesus. And when Paul writes, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, he's referring to a passage from the Hebrew Scriptures. And this would have given him an increased authority to what he said to the Corinthians who treasured the Hebrew Scriptures. Jeremiah 9.24 says, But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So he's reminding the Christians in Corinth that they're to abide in this teaching all the more and rejoice in this teaching all the more in light of what God has now done in Christ. He doesn't just generally refer to Christ's work, but he specifically outlines three aspects of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection that are worth the Corinthians celebrating, that are worth the Corinthians boasting. And the amazing news for us today is that we can boast in these exact same things. We can boast in the same grace that changed everything for the Corinthians and which changes everything for us. And the three things that he specifically lists are, firstly, Christ in God's wise plan has become our righteousness. He's taken our sin upon himself. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, amazing verse. Secondly, he has become our sanctification. He's made it possible for us to grow in grace in the Christian life. And Romans 8 9 tells us a really famous verse that you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And saying that another way, we could say that those who do belong to Christ have his Spirit in them. As followers of Jesus, we now have God's own Spirit dwelling inside of us making us look more and more like him if we listen to his voice and obey it. So he's become our righteousness. He's become our sanctification. And lastly, Jesus has become our redemption. The Greek word here is apolutrosis. And it can be taken to mean a liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. I love that. A liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. Liberated from what? Harold Mayer writes that Jesus is the person by whom we have been delivered from sin, the devil, hell and the grave. Paul tells us later on in the letter that death has no more victory, that death has no sting. The plans by which Satan would have each of us damned have been completely overthrown. Our enemy has been defeated and we are released as a result. We're liberated. 
And this is what Paul's talking about when he instructs them to boast in the Lord, is to boast in all of these things. <clears throat> and one thing I think that it's key to note here, as we think about what do we do with this passage and where do we go from here, is that what we've been looking at doesn't mean that wisdom, strength and standing are completely unimportant, that they're completely irrelevant. Because as we saw earlier, there were key figures in the church that embodied these attributes. Paul himself, for example, was obviously a really wise man, educated to a really high standard, which I think is obvious when we look at the eloquence that he writes with. God can and indeed does use our attributes which he's given us and influence which he's given us to expand his kingdom. But we mustn't ever fall into the trap of thinking that any of these things are what put us in right standing with God. That was done through Christ and Christ alone. His grace alone changes everything. And I think there's another thing to remember that is a lot easier said than done. I think we should potentially be ready to be used in areas where we feel weak, where we feel unskilled or even unimportant, in order to, as Paul says, shame the wise, in order to shame the strong, in order to bring to nothing that which has been viewed as something. And are we willing to do that this morning? Because so often I feel I want to do the things that I'm best at to bring God glory, but for the Corinthians, it seems to be that God was brought glory by using those who weren't very good at something, by using those who weren't very strong. So are we willing this morning to, to do things that way, if that's what God has in store for us? So that he can be glorified in our context, here in Denston, in the East End, in our city, and in our nation. And above everything else, if we're going to boast about something, let's boast about Jesus and everything that he's done for each of us, everything that he is doing in each of us and through us as individuals, as a church, and in all that he's promised to bring about. And I'm just going to take some time to pray and create a space to just really ask God, eh, are there areas which we're boasting in where we need to not be doing that, where we need to let uh, the message of all that Jesus has done for us come in and be the determining factor so we're just going to take some time and pray um, and we'll have some silence just to reflect while we do that Father thank you so much that you have done so much for us that you've done so much in us, that you're doing so much through us. But we recognise, God, that there's still a journey, there's still a process, that you've begun a work of sanctification in our lives, of bringing about greater purity and holiness, and we still have a way to go in a lot of areas. And sometimes, God, it's hard to, to not place a lot of emphasis in the areas that society tells us are of the greatest importance of the greatest worth and so I pray God this morning as we just take a moment I pray that you would highlight by your spirit God 
any areas where we're boasting <coughs> in the things of this world, where we're putting the things of this world above you, where we believe that we're in greater position than we actually are. And I pray that you would cause us to reflect in this time, God, on what you've done. <coughs> Increase our boasting in you. So just highlight those areas to us now, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your promise that the work that you've begun in us, you will see it through to completion. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would increase our boasting in you, increase our focus on you, Lord. I pray that we would be so amazed by you, God, that people would know exactly who we follow before we even open our mouths and that our words would only serve to confirm that which they've seen in our living. We make our boast in you this morning, Lord. <laughs>